When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following podcast contains explicit language. Are you ready to make America great again? Bernie Sanders doesn't get it. Hillary Clinton doesn't get it. Barack Obama, he really don't get it. The next time we see him, we might have to kill him. Donald Trump has a lot of work to do telling us what he's going to do specifically. I continue to believe Mr. Trump will not be president. And the reason is because I have a lot of faith in the American people. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast, the show about the man with 264 subsidiaries named after him, not counting the 54 that modestly bear only his initials. I'm Jacob Weisberg. So we've talked a lot on this show about the threat Donald Trump presents to American democracy, but we haven't talked that much about what makes American democracy so vulnerable to a demagogue like Donald Trump right now. My guest today is my old friend Andrew Sullivan. And he's written an important article in New York Magazine about just that question. It's called, America Has Never Been So Ripe for Tyranny. Andrew thinks it's the recent evolution of our political system, the declining barriers to the expression of popular will, the declining authority of elites, and the transformation of media that have made Trump possible. He thinks American democracy is in real danger. Our conversation left him depressed, and it scared me shitless. I'll be back with it right after we do the tweets. The Thaling at New York Times wrote yet another hit piece on me. All are impressed with how nicely I have treated women. They found nothing a joke. Why doesn't the Thaling New York Times write the real story on the Clintons and women? The media is totally dishonest. Why did the failing at New York Times refuse to use any of the names given to them that I was so proud to have helped with their careers? Dishonest. With the coming forward today of the woman central to the failing at New York Times hit piece on me, we have exposed the article as a fraud. The media is really on a witch hunt against me. False reporting and plenty of it. But we will prevail. My guest today is Andrew Sullivan. He wrote the article, America Has Never Been So Ripe for Tyranny, in New York Magazine recently. Andrew, welcome to Trumpcast. Thank you for having me. So this was a a fantastic piece. I mean, I think it's one of the the most important things written about the phenomenon of Trump. But I think the really striking thing about it is that you see Trump not just as a dangerous politician or as a demagogue, but a, a threat to the survival of American democracy. Well, I do think that his general attitude, his general understanding of how to exercise power, 
is inimical to the American idea. The American idea is that power should be dispersed and that there should be no king. And yet he himself seems incapable of believing he could ever have any such a position except that of a, a monarch of some sort. He has no, no real understanding of a non-zero-sum engagement. And so the idea of sharing power or being checked by other branches of government or even checked by the press seems anathema to him. And I think when you have someone with that kind of temperament walking into our constitutional system, you are kind of setting yourself up for, for a constitutional crisis. America was founded in rebellion against monarchy. I mean, if it's a founding idea of America, it's that monarchy is unacceptable. You and I hear this in everything Donald Trump says, that he, that he is a would-be dictator, that those are his instincts. Why do so many of his supporters not hear that monarchical tone in his speech? Well, I think some of them do and like it, and some of them just don't take him seriously. I think there's something that I've noticed in people who support him, which is that they will say they support him, but then they say, well, I don't really think he's going to be able to do all those things, he says. And there is a sense also that he himself, by completely reversing himself within minutes on on what might appear to be solid platform planks, also kind of adds a, a sort of element of unseriousness to his policy proposals. But I think both are compatible in a way. The vagueness about policy is simply because he's not interested in policy. What he's interested in is power. And I think as one of his, I think it was Manafort, uh, your old friend, Paul Manafort, Indeed. Um, who, who said he'll deal with policy after he gets elected. <laughs> we're not going to debate that beforehand. So he's really, really interested in the wielding of his own power. And that's, you know, that's not the American way. It's not a democratic way of being. It's an anti-democratic notion of being. And I think there's also an element in the culture in which Washington is viewed as entirely broken, and therefore they want to blow it up and use this guy to blow it up and then to do whatever he wants. And so I think that at the root of this is a very un-American desire to abolish self-government, to say, okay, we live in such a divided, fractured, polarized society. We can't really solve our own problems through our traditional constitutional processes. We'll just elect this tyrant and he will just do it somehow. When, when you use these terms like un-American, undemocratic, neo-fascist, you're really picking up on something that is new with Trump in modern American politics, which is violence and the threat of violence as part of the campaign. Talk about how Trump has brought violence into American politics in a way that isn't precedented. You know, we've had plenty of rowdy and difficult public meetings in the history of American politics. Goodness knows, extraordinary levels, and in modern times, too. But the one thing you've also always had when a protester stands up or a heckler tries to shut something down, the speaker, whoever he or she is and whatever office they're running for, will generally say something like this. I respect your views. This is a free country. You can air this, but please allow me to respond. And if they don't respond, or if they still are being cantankerous, they say, well, look, you can't, uh, you can't behave here, so we're going to just ask security to come and take you away. And that is, you know, that is what we have as a civil democratic norm. And what he says, in contrast, is, look at this person. What a disgusting person this is. I would like, and I'm, 
directly quoting, to punch that person in the face. I want that person to be carried out on a stretcher, as in the old days. I want violence inflicted upon people who are protesting or heckling me. That is an extraordinarily new thing in American politics. It's, it's, it's anathema to a tradition of civil discourse, because what it says in the end is that whatever differences we have, in the end, they will be resolved by force, not by persuasion. And that is a core violation of a basic democratic norm. And that's the basis of our civilization. So there's, there's an old-fashioned kind of mob rule, which is these rallies that turn violent and where he encourages the violent. But there's a new kind of mob rule, which is this digital social media mob rule. Yeah, and then the people who dare speak up or out about him are then deluged with staggering amounts of invective and bile and hatred. I think of someone like Julia Yoffe. I must say that one of the things that's interested me both in Julia's case and in some other conservative cases is the rank anti-Semitism that's also there out there now, which, of course, you would understand from this kind of movement. But that is also for the forefront of, of most of the attacks. This is mob rule of an extraordinarily esoteric variety, but it definitely chills free speech. It chills the criticism of our public officials, and thereby deeply weakens our democracy. I have to say my jaw dropped yesterday when I saw the headline on Breitbart calling Bill Kristol a renegade Jew. I mean, I I don't think Trump is himself an anti-Semite, but he's sure bringing it out of the woodwork. Oh, yeah. But again, we shouldn't we shouldn't miss that the anti-Muslim rhetoric is is a, a, a different order. Again, we talk about America, it seems to me, as an immigrant to America, that essential part of America, the reason it was founded in some ways was religious liberty at its very origins, that you come here, you can worship whichever God you want or none, and that this is a country that won't judge you or have any laws or any restrictions upon that fundamental liberty. And yet his fundamental campaign promise is to deny anyone of a particular faith entrance to the United States. That's, that's an abolition of America. Similarly, with, with torture, for a long time, it's just a, a complete bedrock principle of the West that we do not subject human beings to torture of any kind. Now, this has been obviously breached and was fatally breached under the Bush administration. Breached, but never acknowledged. No, never fully acknowledged. But I think, you know, the Senate report is pretty damning in this, in this respect. But the difference here is that having opened that door a crack, Trump has just broken the door open entirely by saying, not as Cheney would, we're not torturing, and anyway, if we are torturing, we're doing it because we have no other way to get intelligence. Trump says we should torture. Torture is great, and the point of torture is to terrify and intimidate our enemies. In other words, his view of torture is exactly that of ISIS. It is a demonstrative, performative act of cruelty, and I think that's the other element in him that's truly disturbing, is that his hatred for the weak his contempt for anybody who isn't as strong as he is, as he imagines himself to be. I find it inimical to my entire moral worldview. It seems to me the one thing you can judge a person by is how he or she treats someone with less power than, than him or her. And it's quite clear that he believes in punching down in a way that really reflects his massive insecurity. I mean, 
can I? He doesn't believe there is any up to punch. No, of course, no, he doesn't. But nonetheless, the people he does punch are tend to be vulnerable to him. So, Andrew, you argue that this is happening now, not just because there's this vile monster, Donald Trump. You actually call him a monster. I thought it was a well, well-chosen term. But because American democracy has become more susceptible to it, and the reason it has become more susceptible to someone like this is because it's been getting more democratic. Can you explain what you're talking about, about America getting too democratic? Well, I think there was always a concern among the founders that what they wanted to construct in America was not a pure, direct democracy, which they understood would be subject to the whims and passions and fads of of a popular majority at any one particular moment. Um, Now, this may not be a very popular thing to say today, but it, it does seem to me important that there be some place for the will of the mob, for the will of the pure democratic majority to be restrained, to be, to be channeled into more productive and less, and less dangerous forms. And what's happened through the democratization of media, through the collapse of elites in terms of the political parties, and through the, the further democratization of the Senate, and now actually having the Supreme Court literally put up for election, um, in which the Republicans are currently saying, even the Supreme Court should be subject to democratic rule, really, via the parties. This is not what the founders intended. And so the, the safeguards that we used to have against an individual like this have been weakened or removed. So that if we could imagine him winning, and I think, to be honest with you, I think he's more likely to win at this point than Clinton. Really? If he would, yes. But, but that's, I mean, I can't prove that. Okay. I just, that's my instinct at this point, because he, he owns the narrative. But uh, were he to win, I think he'd br- obviously he'd bring the House with him, probably the Senate, and then would have the Supreme Court. So there'd be nothing to stand between him and the people. And that's a very dangerous position, especially when this individual is proposing a trade war with our biggest trade partners. He's proposing you know, a reign of terror in the Middle East, at least demonstratively to smash or destroy or to cut the head off whatever metaphors he uses, ISIS, but I don't think he would sit back and pursue the current strategy. These are extraordinarily radical changes against which we would have almost no defense. There was a uh, response to your piece from our old friend Michael Lind I saw in the um, New York Times Sunday, and he said, well, America is not becoming more democratic. In fact, if you're an ordinary person in America, you feel our process getting less democratic and that you have less and less power over outcomes and less and less sense that you have any control, which is the explanation of Trump. Well, yes, but I think that is, that is, that is true in one way, in the sense that the globalization that we're experiencing, which really has occurred since the end of the Cold War, the fact that we did actually go through the democratic processes and pass NAFTA, for example, that has had a huge effect on the American economy in a way that America itself, as a nation, can't fully control. And I think those of us who, who, who were very much born after need to be more cognizant that its political and cultural impact and social impact has been much graver than we thought it might have been or would be. But that's not the same thing as having no ability to influence your political agenda, or your, the, the world you live in. And, and as I try and point out, in general, what's, what's been powering this election, what empowered the last two elections is small-D democracy in the sense that Obama won twice through small donations against existing 
elite power structures. Bernie Sanders, who rails constantly about how big money prevents democracy taking place, has had an extraordinary run in the primaries and has, has built a huge online and physical army of supporters, again, without big money, without a super PAC. And you see the, the people who represent elites as much not doing at all well, staggering under the onslaught of these populist currents. So, yes, I can understand why some feel powerless in the wake of technological and trading change, but I don't think it's proven that that can't be addressed within our current system. In fact, I think it's been addressed more potently than I remember in a very long time. Andrew, you said we should stop beating up on the Republicans who are trying to stop Trump. It was maybe still possible to stop Trump when you you wrote your piece. Um, leave us with some hope here. I mean, what's the what's the scenario? And <laughs> which you've left me you've left me very depressed. What's the? Uh, I've been so <laughs> depressed. <laughs> I, 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 I've been barely able to get out of bed. I mean, this is it's. it's I, I just I'm trying. Here's what I'm trying to believe. You know, I would have hope. To be honest with you, if the alternative was not Hillary Clinton, I mean, I, I, I and I'm not saying this is a Hillary hater, although I am one. <laughs> um, I'm proud. But you have no qualms about supporting her under the circumstances, and and the Republicans, you know, have have been one of the things that surprised me a little bit is there are a lot of prominent Republicans who agree with just about everything you've said and have said it in terms nearly as strong. And they still stop short of saying they're going to vote for Hillary Clinton. They say they're not going to vote or they're not sure what they're going to do or they're going to look for an alternative that doesn't exist. What's wrong with Hillary Clinton? She's not the end of the world if the alternative is Donald Trump. She's not. And that's why I have no qualms in supporting her if that's what it is. But I do think – That's what it is. uh, Well, we don't know yet if the third party – the third option is available. I know that some people are seriously trying to figure that out. That, that was be, the renegade Jew, I think. Yeah, that, would is, that is the renegade Jew <laughs> that we're talking about, <laughs> hashtag renegade Jew. Um, the fact that I'm there's no, no space between me and Bill Crystal on this is, is somewhat sobering. Um, but nonetheless, <laughs> I do think that, that the only way she could win is by splitting the non-democratic vote. And if they can do it, I think it's their patriotic duty to try. Andrew, I think we're going to have to wind up with that exhortation, but thank you for joining (laughs) me on Trumpcast, and I hope you cheer up. Thank you. That's it for today's episode of Trumpcast. You know, if we were the Trump organization, Henry Malofsky would be director of real estate, and Jason DeLeon would be head of construction. Steve Lichtai would run the Donald J. Trump signature collection of menswear and accessories. Andy Bowers, you guessed it, the president of Trump University. John D. Domenico would, of course, be Mr. Trump. Let's close today with this from Full Frontal with Samantha B. I'm Jacob Weisberg. Thanks for listening. Seriously, what is going on? Are evangelicals that eager to get the apocalypse going? They had the chance to back someone who has grown in a vat to be the perfect evangelical candidate. But instead, most evangelicals said, no, we're going to go with a thrice-married foul-mouthed tit judge who likes Planned Parenthood and thinks Corinthians is a type of car upholstery. I have great relationship with God. Most importantly, I brought my Bible.
We love the art of the deal, but the Bible is far, far, far superior, right? The Bible means a lot to me, but I don't want to get into specifics. Two Corinthians, right? Two Corinthians, 317. That's the whole ball game. God will be very proud of me. When we go in church and, and when I drink my little wine, which is about the only wine I drink, and have my little cracker. <laughs> pet name for baby Jesus too. Happy birthday, little cracker.